Good morning. It's good to be back today. And last week we talked about God's power and omnipotence. And this next week, today, we're going to be talking about God's omniscience. Uh, But before we do, I want to begin with a story that happened a long time ago. It was the 1926 World Series. And there was a little boy by the name of Johnny Sylvester who was kicked in the face by a horse, was very ill and injured. And there's a great debate as to whether he was already sick or whether a lot of being kicked in the face by a horse caused many of the other illnesses that came about. But Johnny had one request. I want to meet Babe Ruth before I die. Well, this got back to the babe, and he visited little Johnny Sylvester in the hospital and brought with him some signed baseballs from the New York Yankees and from the St. Louis Cardinals. And there was a little discussion that happened there in which Babe Ruth promised Johnny Sylvester that he would hit him a home run in the World Series. And in the next game, would you believe it? Babe Ruth hit three. This was a miraculous, miracle act, according to the physicians and the family of Johnny Sylvester, because afterwards, Johnny started to recover very quickly. That's the end of the baseball season for 1926, and then we fast forward just a few months later. What are we talking? About three or four months of no baseball, and then spring training comes around. And during spring training, Johnny's uncle approached the babe and said, thank you for all that you've done for little Johnny. And babe looks at him and says, you're welcome, with the pride of the Yankees, right? But then he turns to the reporters and says, Who in the bleepity bleep is Johnny Sylvester? And we're left with a great contrast, aren't we? The knowledge of the great Bambino versus the knowledge of the great I Am. And aren't you glad that God never forgets us? Today we're going to begin by taking a look at God's omniscience. First, by defining it simply that God is all-knowing. I believe that this means that God knows every detail about the past, that He knows everything about what's taking place currently, right now, in the present. God also knows everything that's going to transpire in the future. He knows the possible, what could happen, and He knows the potential of every one of us, what we could and will become. Scripture is clear about God's omniscience. It's all over the place. There are very few scholars who are traditional evangelical Christians who would doubt that God is omniscient and knows all because it's just profoundly throughout all of Scripture. Just a few places. 1 Samuel 2.3 says the Lord is a God who knows. 1 John 3.20 says God knows everything. Psalm 147.5 says Great is our Lord, His understanding has no limit. In Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. But today we're going to turn to Psalm 139. We're going to take a look at God's omniscience and appreciate God's omniscience through David's perspective. And you're going to notice through the passages that are up there in my outline that we're going to be skipping around a little bit in Psalm 139, but that's okay. Because the next time I come, I'm going to be preaching on God's omnipresence, 
And we're going to fill in those passages that we don't address today with the passages on God's omnipresence. And overall, what we will have taken a look at over three sermons that I'll be presenting is God's omnipotence being all-powerful, His omniscience all-knowing, and His omnipresence that He's everywhere present at the same time. And I, and I offer you this because I want us to be encouraged by God's attributes, by who He is, and our understanding of God knowing us very deeply and intimately. And we invite Him to know us even more than, because the, the, the issue here is that we want God to know us. We want to invite Him into those places that we might think are hidden. They're not. There's no place that is hidden in our lives from God. God knows all, every little detail of our life. But the question is, do we want Him to? Do we want Him to? He already knows us completely. We're going to be taking a look at that. He knows us constantly. There's no time when he, he drops His knowledge of us. And God searches us conclusively to the very, very end. Let's first take a look at this concept of God knowing us completely. No one knows us more thoroughly than God. That's a truth. As much as our spouses know us, as much as our parents know us and our friends and family, uh, that all fails in comparison to what God knows of us. Certainly there's things that my mom knows about me. I mean, she's known me for 45 years. She ought to. And she's a pretty good predictor of the way that I will behave. She, she guesses right most of the time. But that's nothing compared to what God knows about my character and my actions and what drives and motivates me. My wife knows me. The good, the bad, and the smelly. She knows everything about me that I've revealed to her, and I know everything about her that she's revealed to me, and we continue to grow in our understanding of each other in our, in our marriage, and, 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 and we want to have as much open communication as we possibly can. But the truth be told, I only know about my wife what my wife reveals to me about her. And likewise, unlike God who knows that which I reveal and that's which I try to hide, he even knows that which I try to hide. And our friends and family know us. Church friends know us to the degree that we let them know. And yet, certainly not exhaustively, not in the way that God knows. But when we recognize that God knows us completely, we understand this. And theologically, I think we'd all agree that God knows us exhaustively and completely. But here's the twist. Do we live it out that way? Do you truly live your life as though God knows every detail of it? He already knows every detail, whether we choose to live that way or not. But the question of the day really is, do we live as though God knows us? Because there's often a disconnect between the spiritual IQ, what we know, and I know that God knows, versus the spiritual I do, how I go out and live my life. And we ought not have a great separation between the spiritual IQ, what I know, and the spiritual I do, what I do with that knowledge. And yet so much, so many times there's a disconnect between I know that, that God knows, but somehow, some way, we think we can keep stuff hidden. It's just better to come clean and, and, and confess and, and to get our relationship right with God. 
See, God already knows what we do. That's the first thing. Our actions, He knows what we do. And we turn to Psalm 139, verses 1 and 2, and we see that David says, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. And this concept of sitting and rising should really encompass all aspect of our day. Really. I mean, he knows when we get up in the morning. He knows when we sit down. And He knows when we stand. And He knows when I'm going to get to work. And He knows when I'm going to get home. He knows every aspect of my day. When I'm going to sit and watch the ball game. And when I'm going to get up to get a snack. I mean, He knows every little detail about me already. God knows what we do. We cannot keep that hidden. Proverbs 5.21 says, For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and He examines all your paths. And certainly, I have a lot of choices to make in my life. I have a lot of paths that I could take, but God knows me better than I know myself. He knows which ones I could and which ones I do, which ones I have, and which ones I will take on what I'm seeing, maybe several choices I could make on any given particular issue. Because God knows me better than I know myself, I believe that God knows which path I'm going to take long before I even know it's a path to take. And God knows what we think. God knows if you're thinking to yourself, I can't wait till this message is over so I can get home and watch the ball game. Or whether you're thinking to myself, I can't wait until Patrick comes back again to preach another message for us. I don't know what you're thinking. I'm looking at faces right now, but I have no idea what your thoughts are. Let's be encouraged by Psalm 139, the second part of verse 2, that God knows what we're thinking. You perceive my thoughts from afar. God knows what's happening inside of our minds. The conversations that we have to ourselves and with ourselves that we wouldn't utter out loud because we don't want the person next to us to know that we're thinking. God knows those thoughts. In Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. In Jeremiah 17.10 is one of the reasons why I do believe that it's not right necessarily for us to be judges of other people's motives because we don't know the motives. Other people's thoughts. Yes, I do believe we can judge actions, but we can't judge motives. And for that, God is the only one who is really the adequate judge and allows us at times to let go of things and just to let God be the one who judges. It's the reason why we can continue to forgive 70 times, seven times. Just continue forgiving, forgiving, forgiving and letting it go because we know that God knows and sees and understands things that we might not understand. We are, in a sense, judges based on our own perception of things. What inadequate judges are we? God is the only adequate judge because He's the only one that can see the heart and to understand the thought of what's taking place in the motives behind the actions. Number three, God knows where we go. Psalm 139.3 says, You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. And it's good to know that God not only knows what we do, not only knows what we think, but He knows where we're going. 
He sees us. He knows what's happening in our thoughts. He knows our direction. He knows the direction of Joy Christian Center long before you have any meetings. He knows the future. He knows where we go. And I found it interesting that this word when David says, you discern my going out and my lying down, that word discern in Hebrew simply means to winnow or sift through grain. And in the Old and New Testament times, one of the, one of the ways that they did this was to actually take a, a large pitchfork and, and, and shove it into the grain and throw the grain up in the air. And the chaff, the bad part of the, the grain, would, would, would blow away in the wind. And the good part of the grain that you wanted to keep would fall down on the ground. There's also something called threshing, which is different than winnowing. And threshing is when you really try to pound it out. And there are different tools for that where somebody's just slamming kind of a hammer down on the grain to, to crush it all up before they throw it up in the air. We ought not confuse threshing with, with winnowing. But I researched something that I thought was even more fascinating. The different ways that you winnow grain throughout history have changed based on the tools and the development of tools that, that we've received over time to help us in the process. I don't know that farmers take a pitchfork and throw grain up in the air anymore. They have machinery for this now. But I looked up something that I found to be very, very complicated, very tedious, and that is to winnow grain by hand. No tools. A, a, a very tedious process that takes a long time. That's how I understand discernment. When... David is writing, you discern my going in and my lying down. I don't necessarily see this as God just taking a pitchfork and throwing it up in the air and hopefully things blow in the right direction. I think he's taking his time with us, investing laboriously in us because of the love that he has for each one of us. It's not an easy task to do this by hand. Winnowing grain with tools is much easier. But if God does this the slow way, which I think David had in mind, it just shows the, the, the love and care and concern that God has for each one of us. God also knows what we say. Psalm 139.4, Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. Wow, that's a thought. <laughs> that God knows the words that are going to come out of my mouth long before I even know what I'm going to say. That's good news for five minutes from now. That God knows what I'm going to say in this message five minutes before I even utter it. That's good news. And I do pray every time before I, I present God's Word that my words are His words to the congregation. That really what you're hearing is my voice spoken physically out there and going into your physical ears, but inside your heart inside your soul, inside your mind, is, is really God speaking to you. That you might even ponder these things later on this afternoon, later on in the week, and be encouraged because the Holy Spirit is working in your life then to bring forth the words that I'm forming right now. Reality is, I have no idea how God uses these words. I'm just here 
presenting to you what I felt God calling me to present. But the good news is God knows how he's going to use those words in days, in weeks, months, and what I found in my life, even years to come. Sometimes I'm finding myself having heard a message many, many years ago, and it comes back to bless me now that I'm an adult. And it's amazing what God can do with the power of words. And yet he knows what words are going to come out of our mouth long before we even speak them. And God also knows what we need. In Psalm 139.5, it says, You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. And this word for him is a military word, basically saying that you've got me surrounded by all sides. And David, who wrote Psalm 139, would have been very familiar with the, the process of a military surrounding its enemy from all sides. And so when David says, you hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me, he's feeling overwhelmed by the reality that God knows. He's feeling overwhelmed by God's knowledge. Let me say that that's a good thing because God knows us and because God loves us, because he's created us and desires a personal relationship with us. It's overwhelming in a positive sense, not so much in the negative sense or I don't believe it should be. But then Jesus would say in Matthew 6, 7 through 8, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. So if He knows what I need and He knows the words that are going to come out of my tongue and out of my mouth before I even say them, then of course some knucklehead's going to say, then why even bother praying? The reality is, God desires relationship with us. And we ought to desire relationship with Him. And because He desires relationship with us and we desire relationship with Him, there should be a concept of and a deep desire to pray. And pray even in petition, asking God for things. But that's not where it's limited to. The Bible has all kinds of, of different kinds of prayers that, that we can pray. It's not just asking, although God does desire us to ask because He is our provider. He also desires gratitude and thanksgiving. Do we pray with an attitude of thanksgiving and words of praise and thanks? Do we pray worship? Sometimes I find myself just praying the songs that we sing in church. The, the, these lyrics that we sing become great prayers when I'm stuck in traffic on the freeway on the way home and I'm just utterly frustrated. Well, what do you do with your time? One of the things that I do with my time, honestly, is I pray. Is I pray. Another thing that I do is I do spend some time listening to the Christian radio because I've just gotten so tired, I think I've listened to just about every song that's ever been created. But I spend a lot of time in prayer also. And I think that that is just demonstrating that if God has a desire for us to know Him and have a relationship with Him, that we ought to be a people of, of prayer and tell him even some things that he already knows. I know for me that I pretty much know what my kids want for, for Christmas, but I still want them to ask. I still want them to come and, and, and tell me some of the things that they want. I, I want to know how their day is, even though my wife may have already told me. I want to hear it from them. 
Because there's something that brings me great joy as a father in actually hearing my son come into the room and sit down and say, Dad, I want, I want to tell you about my day. And yes, we do homeschool, that is true. But my kids are also on Wednesdays going to uh, various different schools that are helping them throughout the day. It's a charter program. And, and so we've enrolled uh, my oldest son in a speech program to help him uh, with uh, speech and debate skills, which because I'm a speech and debate coach, I think that's very important. Uh, but he's also getting some help in math and some of the other subjects. And just the other day, it was last Wednesday, uh, when I got home from work, he came running up to me full of joy, sharing with me how happy he was with the results of the speech that he had given, that we had worked on together. And, and I think if we're in this together with God that much of our prayer life should be telling him, now I already knew how the day went. I knew how the speech was because my wife had texted me early in the day once the speech was over that my son had a great speech. So I knew it, but I still wanted to hear it from his mouth. And I think God is that way. He knows what we're going to ask before we even ask, but he wants to hear it from us. He wants to hear the joys of our day when things go well. He wants us to come to him with tears when things do not go well. I remember that there was a, uh, a scene in this movie called uh, The Apostle. And I remember it's an old movie. But there's a scene in the movie where the man is in his room and he's yelling, yelling at God. And then it pans to the mother. She looks at the camera and says, sometimes he talks to God and sometimes he yells at God. And I wonder if God would be okay. He's big enough and he's strong enough to allow his creation to even demonstrate at times when we're angry, when we're hurt. I think that I would much rather have my son come to me with something that he's angry about and express his anger towards me than to ignore me. I think silence is a great relationship killer. And I am terrified of silence in those that I have relationship with. Because if you don't talk to me for a day, and that becomes two days, and that becomes two weeks, and that becomes two months, and now we're two years and we haven't spoken, that's a very dangerous thing. And I wonder if we give God the silent treatment, how much of our life would go by where we didn't say any prayers at all. I think it's okay to express our emotions to God in prayer. He's big enough to, to handle it. But this ultimate question I want to bring as well is how does it make you feel to know that God is all-knowing? And just in the, in the silence of your own thoughts, answer that question within yourself. How does it make you feel to know that God is all-knowing? Now, that's not a theological question. That, that's a psychological question about our relationship with God. How, how does it make us feel to know that God is all-knowing? And I asked my students this question a few weeks ago when we were talking about the attributes of God, and I got some interesting responses. Some of them were very concerned. They were concerned because they had a list of things that they were concerned that if God really knows everything, then he knows what's on this list, and that concerns me, they said. But others were very comforted because they had a list of things that were going on in their lives that made them feel very comforted that God knows especially difficult decisions that lie ahead with college and different things that are happening in their life that, that God knows. It gives them great comfort. 
And then I responded to the class saying, if I'm honest with you, and if we're honest with each other, I think both answers are correct at different times. Sometimes, because of our sin and our fallenness, or whatever it may be with our attitudes, uh, we, we feel uh, that it, it's, it's not very comforting. Uh, it's actually concerning sometimes to know that, that God knows. But on the other hand, it's a great comfort to know that God knows all things. I think if we're honest with ourselves because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and yet we all approach Him in relationship, that at times we're concerned, at other times we're comforted, but we really should be more comforted than concerned because, see, God knows and loves you even though He knows you. Let me say that again. God knows you and He loves you even though He knows you. See, in, in, in our relationship with each other, there's some things that sometimes come up that you might say, well, Pastor, if you knew me, you wouldn't like me. And I might have some things on my list that if you knew this about me, you might not like me. And so we kind of hide those things from each other because I want you to like me and you want me to like you. And so I'm going I'm to put this thing that I'm afraid that if you know about me, I, I'm going to put that up on the shelf. And, and I'm not going to reveal that to anybody. The reality is, those things that we hide from one another, God knows those things. And the beauty of it is, even though He knows those things that we try to hide from others, He still loves you. He's passionate about you. He loves you so much that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer and die on the cross for you. And if that doesn't give you hope and encouragement, I don't know what will. So God knows us. But he also thinks about us constantly. We're going to take a look now at Psalm 139, 17, and 18. God's thoughts are precious to us even more than expensive jewels. In Psalm 139, 17, it says, How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. We think about how, how precious God's thoughts are to know that he's thinking about us. Up on the screen is a picture of a watch. This watch has the blue, and that blue is lapis lazuli. You might not uh, recall, or maybe you do, but that was one of the stones that was listed in the description of Ezekiel's vision that he had last week. So I thought, I'm going to bring this together. Because this watch up here, I checked the price, Thankfully, I didn't make any mistakes with the buttons that I was pushing because that watch alone, Lapis Lazuli, will cost you about $34,000. You talk about expensive jewels, yes, but more precious to me are your thoughts, God, than the vast sum of them. How precious are God's thoughts to you? The reality that God knows you. And God's thoughts are not only precious to David and precious to us, more precious than a lapis lazuli watch, but his thoughts are also numerous. For in Psalm 139.18, it says, Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. So then I have to ask the question, how many grains of sand are there? 
Now, this is a question that we don't know, but you'd be interested to find out that people have actually tried to estimate the number of grains of sand there are on the earth. So I thought I'd do a little bit more research on this because if, if, if Psalms is going to tell us that were I to count the thoughts of God, they would outnumber the grains of sand, I'm curious as to what kind of estimate people have in regards to how much sand there actually is on the earth. And if you assume a grain of sand has an average size, whatever that average size might be, it's extremely small, and you calculate how many grains are in a teaspoon, and then multiply that by all the beaches and deserts in the world, the earth has roughly, and this is roughly because we don't know exactly, 7.5 times 10 to the 18th power grains of sand, which would make it somewhere around 7 quintillion 500 quadrillion grains. That's a large number. And yet, Psalm 139.18 tells us that God's thoughts outnumber the grains of sand on this earth. Now, it doesn't say that we're left with sand only on, uh, on earth. Maybe there's sand on other planets that needs to be considered as well. But we're left with, really, an astronomical number of thoughts that God has. And God is infinite. So He can, he can entertain all of these thoughts because even though this number, 7 quintillion 500 quadrillion grains, is an astronomically large number, it's still a finite number. And God is infinite. So He can entertain all the thoughts and invest in every detail of every individual life here on earth because of His greatness. And God's thoughts are constant. Let's turn to Psalm 121, 3 through 4. David continues to write, and he says, He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And it's encouraging to know that God's thoughts are constant, that, that He never slumbers, He never sleeps, He never takes a break from us. That's good news. One of the best compliments that my wife ever gave me was when I got home one day and she says, I thought of you all day long. But you have to think about this. She's homeschooling my three children. Is she really able... Is she capable to think about me all day long? Now when she says, or when any of us say, I'm thinking about you all day long, it includes all of the breaks that we have. I mean, certainly I would love to tell my wife, I'm thinking about you all day long. But the reality is, I have classes to teach. And I can't be focused 100% of my attention on thinking about what my wife is doing and also teach my class. Now I might have my wife in mind, but not to the, to the depth that God does. And so when we say, I'm thinking about you, that is a great compliment, I will say. It's great to know that she was thinking about me all day. And I think it's a great compliment for me to let her know that I'm thinking about her. But when we say that, what do we really mean? Well, we mean that we're entertaining the thoughts of the person, they're in our heart, but certainly it includes all of the breaks for us to accomplish other tasks. But when we recognize that God watches over you, will not slumber, He will not sleep nor slumber, 
He's, his thoughts are constant. There's no breaks for God. He's not going to take a break to go do something and then forget about you for a time period. Where, to be honest, I would if I'm thinking about my wife all day. I'm thinking about her, but I'm taking a break to go do something else. And so God's thoughts are constant. Then we understand that God searches us conclusively. When we say that God searches us conclusively, we say that, and I, and I kind of have this, this, this feeling of kind of like a magnifying glass. Just to, not that God can't see and needs a magnifying glass, but that God's attention on us is so detailed that he knows us conclusively. Now, to, to do something conclusively means that you bring an end to it. When, when, when in debates, when we're debating, we want to debate conclusively in that we want to have an answer at the end. And, and so God searches us kind of with that mentality. Kind of like I feel like a Sherlock Holmes type of thing. Where, where there will be nothing left unturned in this case. Now, he's not searching us to reach a verdict. He's searching us conclusively because he loves us. He's searching us with a different motive in mind. And David recognizes this. And in Psalm 139, 23-24, invites God to bring the magnifying glass into his own life and reveal what's going on inside David's life. When he writes Psalm 139, 23-24, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He invites God into his life. I just simply ask you this. Will you invite God into your life to do this investigation? Will you invite God to search you and to test you? And here's why. The searching and the testing is not about God. He already knows what's going on in your life. The invitation for the search and the test is for you. It's for you to invite the creator of the universe to analyze you and to reveal in you those things that need to be confessed, those things that need to be made right, those things that need to be perfected, so that we can have a deeper relationship with God and also a stronger relationship with one another. We say, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. The Hebrew word that's used for search is about digging up to, 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 in, in a mine to find valuable materials. It's not a negative thing. It's a positive thing. We want to... To, 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 to look for that, that lost gold. But in order for us to become that gold, that polished gold, some things in my life might need to be discovered first. Might need to discover the rock first and polish it off to get it right, to get it made perfect. Rough all the, the, smooth off all the rough edges. But if I don't even see what's there, how can I get made right? So the invitation to search, like that of digging up valuable minerals in a mine. And the word for test 
is used for examining precious metals to prove what? Not that they're not precious, but just the opposite, to prove their purity. So invite God to search you and to test you and to show you what it is that is happening in your life. In fact, this would be a prayer to take home with us, honestly, is to ask God first to search me. Look in my heart, God, and reveal to me what you're finding as you, as you search me. And then test me. I want to have pure motives, but there may be some things in my life that are impure. God, bring out the impurities of my life. Show me those impurities so that I'm aware of them, that I might be made right, that I might become, become more perfected as to in your image and into the person that you want me to be and less like the dirty dog sinner that I have been. Tell me, God, tell me what it is that I might not be seeing here. See, more eyes are always better than my two eyes because I only tend to see what I want to see. I wrote an apologetics textbook called Constructing a Christian Worldview that I now give to my students and it's part of our philosophy class curriculum. But I can tell you, the students ask me, how long did it take you to write the book? I said, it took me two years to write it and an endless amount of time editing it. In fact, sadly, I might still notice a few flaws here and there as I go back and read it. The editing process was horrible because I realized that I could not self-edit because I'm not able to see my own mistakes, my own errors. So I had my father help me. <laughs> And he had no problem with giving me some constructive feedback on some of the ideas as well as some of the words and phrases and, and grammar and, and punctuation and all those things. And we had a great relationship as, as we were editing that book together. Sadly, though, I finally ordered and had it done, had it published. I ordered 500 copies to distribute and I distributed them to local churches in hopes that, that we, we'd get something going and maybe I could go to their church and speak and, and do some Bible studies on the, on the book. And so, of course, I sent to the, to the pastors that are in my family first. And through marriage, I have a lot of pastors that are in the family because a lot of my wife's uncles are pastors and my father-in-law uh, was, was also a pastor before he passed away. And so we sent him out to all his network. And no sooner did I send him in the mail, I received a call from my uh, uncle-in-law, and he said, I want to talk to you about your book. So we had a nice little conversation. He says, I absolutely love it. I think the apologetics, the ideas are great, but are you aware that on the last page, there's four spelling errors? And I guess that there was one particular word that you could say in two different ways, and I am saying it in two different ways, but I'm forgetting to change the way that you're supposed to say it consistently throughout the book. So on the very last page, there were four errors, and I had already made 500 copies and distributed them. My heart just sank. So are you kidding me? Endless editing, and I missed four words on the last page? Well, it's since been fixed, but... Oh, it just, clearly, we don't see our own errors. We don't see our own imperfections. Often it takes other people to see those in us. But God sees them as well. 
It's often that he uses other people to reveal those to us and helps us to get it right. But that's really what I want to be thinking about is how do we invite God who knows all and sees all and hears all to reveal into us some of the errors and flaws, things that we don't even see. Search me, test me, tell me, tell me what they are, and then help me, Lord. Help me to do it. Because once you tell me, then I know it, but that's just spiritual IQ. I need to go out and do it. That's the help, the application part. So help me, Lord. Give me the strength to go to that person and ask for forgiveness because you revealed in me that I've harbored some harsh anger against them. Give me the courage to to step out and do something that you've put on my heart to do because I've been timid to do it, but I know now that I need to do this. Whatever it may be, whatever it may be, God gives you the help. There's a book that I used when I was in college called Knowing God. And actually just this last uh, week as I was putting my books away on my new shelf at my new house because we had had everything out in the garage, I realized that I had two copies of this book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And in this book, Packer says, I am never out of God's mind. There is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me. No moment when, he, when his care falters. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love for me is utterly realistic based on every point of prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me. In that way, I am so often disillusioned about myself. Disillusionment is, is, is disappointing, isn't it? When we think you know a guy, and then they do something, and you say, I thought I knew you better than that. We're so disappointed. But what about what Packer says about himself? It's the idea that God knows me better than I know myself. He knows all the things that are disappointing about me, and yet he still loves me. And in this book, Knowing God, which the majority of it is about this incredible aspect of human beings get to know their creator, J.I. Packer would say, no, one of the, the greatest aspects of knowledge of God is knowing that he knows every detail about you and still loves you. God knows already, and yet he still loves you. And when we're disillusioned about ourselves, I don't think a God who would know this about me could love me. I don't think if my parents knew this about me that they would love me. I don't think that if my wife knew this about me that she would love me anymore. I don't think that if my friends or my church knew about this that I would be ostracized and I would have no friends. So I'm going to keep this hidden on the shelf because this is one piece of my life that if somebody knew, the world wouldn't like me anymore. And the realization that we can take a deep breath and let it all out, understanding that God loves us completely even though he completely knows all of our flaws. There is nothing that can be revealed about God that would make him love you any less because he already knows those things about you. They've already been revealed to him and he still loves you astronomically. Socrates wrote that an unexamined life is not worth living. And this last week, I I put this 
phrase up on the board in the classroom because I wanted students to get into groups and debate. What side would you take? Is Socrates correct? An an unexamined life is not worth living? Or is my life worth living even though it hasn't been examined? And so the students were going back and forth and they were saying that perhaps Socrates is right, that uh, the life that's really only worth living is one that is really analyzed and thought through and has meaning and purpose. And if I have a goal and I can go get it, then it has meaning. And, and if I haven't examined my life, then it's really not worth living. Other people would say, and some of my students were keen to the rebuttal here, saying, well, they weren't sure if, if, if animals had the capacity to examine their lives. And yet to God, an animal life is very valuable. Uh, what about an unborn child? Uh, we don't know that an unborn child has the capacity to examine their own life. They haven't reached the point of uh, self-introspection yet, to, to my knowledge anyways. Uh, or what about the mentally handicapped who might not have the ability to, to think deeply in introspection and, and analyze and even be able to understand what this question is asking? Unexamined life. What does that even mean? And yet their lives certainly seem to be worth living. So they really had a great debate going on in class. But then as I realized, and one of the reasons why I wanted to put this in my message today is to encourage you that when it comes to God, there's no such thing as an unexamined life. Whether you've examined it or not, that may be the perspective that Socrates is coming from. But that it has been examined. There's no such thing as an unexamined life. God's already examined the unborn child in the womb and knows everything about them. God's already examined my dog and knows everything about the dog. God's already examined me and knows everything about me. So Socrates really, unless we really don't know exactly what he was speaking of, I think he was talking about the situation of whether his life would be worth living at a point when he was on trial getting ready for death. And if I can't have philosophy, if I can't have introspection, if I can't have examination of life, then it's not worth living and go ahead and put me to death. That's the, the, the understanding I have of where this phrase came about. But what Socrates lacked was an understanding of what I'm presenting today, and that is the vastness and the depth of God's knowledge, such that no life goes unexamined. Before we close, I just want to say that the next time I come and preach, which I have down for October 13, I want to finish this series and talk about the omnipresence of God. So we would have talked about the omnipotence of God last week, omniscience of God this week, and omnipresence the next time. And I know for one thing that I would love to be speaking next week, but I I do have a prior engagement, uh, and so I'm I'm not omnipresent. I know that's one thing. As much as I would love to be here next week, I can't be in two places at once. But my encouragement to you is that God is everywhere at once. He knows everything that's happening everywhere, all at the same time. And so what I'd like to do is have us stand together.
and close with Romans 11, 33, 36 in a corporate reading. I've identified this as a doxology, and doxology simply means doxologia, a praise or aspect of worship and glory. Logos is speaking. So a doxology is really speaking out or singing out a praise and worship. And Romans 11, 33 through 36 really highlights what it is that we're talking about. So let's say this together, and then I'll close in a word of prayer. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of the glory of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that my brothers and sisters here are encouraged by what we've looked at over the last two weeks. Lord, we put our faith in you and we trust and we know and we've experienced your omnipotence, that you were all-powerful. We were encouraged today by your omniscience, that you're all-knowing of things past, present, future, potential, probable. Uh, we didn't even talk about another hour-long message on omniscience, uh, which is all about prophecy and the way that you uttered truths in the Old Testament that would come true in the person and work of Jesus Christ during New Testament times. So Lord, you're to be praised for many things. And today we praise you for your omniscience. May we take great comfort in your omniscience, knowing that when we're faced with difficult decisions, times of trial, that you already know and you are preparing us for those things. You are powerful and you work in mighty ways. And Lord, what we'll see next time I come is that you are present and with us in every step and every breath we take. So Lord, we bring you the doxology, the word of praise and gratitude, thanksgiving and worship when we say thank you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.